Welcome back to Debating Metal. I'm your host, Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, along with my co-host, Chris Kay. This is a show where we talk about all things hard rock and heavy metal, and this week, we're heading back to the 80s LA scene and going head-to-head with Wasp's self-titled debut versus the sophomore release, The Last Command. These are Wasp's two first albums that made them one of the most talked about metal bands of the mid-80s. We're going to debate the merits of both, and at the end we'll decide which album is better. Last episode we debated Rob Halford's two solo bands, Fight and Halford's debut albums. So if you missed that debate, make sure to download it and click subscribe so you don't miss another episode. Alright, before we get to our main topic today, I have some rusty metal I want to talk about. Um... This week's Rusty Metal, and we haven't done Rusty Metal in a while because uh, really hasn't been the need for it because we've talked about so many old things. But even this time, what we're talking about today is old, but it brings up a, a certain era, and we're talking about the L.A. metal scene from the early 80s, and this album is celebrating its 40th anniversary. It just passed uh, a week or so ago, maybe two weeks ago. Um it is Motley Crue's Too Fast for Love, their 1981 debut album, which they produced themselves. It was recorded at the Hit City West Studios in Los Angeles, California, and it was released on their own Leather Records label, which was owned by them and their manager, Alan Kaufman. All right, so this album is kind of different in, in a couple of ways. It, the original, released on Leather Records, has a certain sound to it. And then it was remixed when the band signed to Electro Records. And it came out a year later or so, or a little bit less than a year later. It has a completely different sound. A lot more bottom end to it, which is good because the song, the, the, the mixes kind of needed it. But at the same time, I like the leather record mixes. They're, they're obviously very different. There's some things that are, that are not on the Electro version that are on the leather version. And vice versa. What I like about the leather records version is that it has those things like the intro to too fast for love or the extra, the background, I guess of the, of the guys in, in the back of, um, uh, at the end of live wire or is it piece of your action? Yeah, no, it's live wire. Um, so there's lots of little nuances that are on the leather records versions that are not on the electro version. And, most people out there are familiar with the Electra version just because that's what's readily available. I have both because a few years ago, um, Motley Crue on Motley Crue Records or Motley Records released a, an official reissue of the Leather Records version on vinyl with the original album cover and all that stuff. So it's really cool. Uh, I bought it. It sits in my collection right next to the Electra version. Um, for those people who don't know or not familiar, the first album has some really cool songs on it, like Take Me to the Top, Piece of Your Action, the title track Too Fast for Love, as well as their concert staple Livewire. So for those people out there who are not familiar with the first album or you know not into Motley Crue or whatever it is that you want, I would still give this album a listen to because it's really, really cool. Uh, it sounds so different from the stuff that's on Shout of the Devil. It sounds so different from the stuff that's on Dr. Feelgood. Uh, Chris, you and I talk about this all the time, how Vince Neil's voice is different from album to album to yeah, album. Yeah, definitely. You know, so this one, I think is probably, 
his second whiniest sounding voice that he's had out there. Because um, like, like he was so angry on Shout the Devil. I love the voice that he uses on Shout the Devil. And then um, his voice is a little more mature, but yet still high pitched on, on um, what is it? Uh, Theater of Pain. I think it gets a little whiny on, on Dr. Feelgood. And Girls, Girls, Girls is pretty different too. It's more kind of, I don't want to say yelling, but it's it's I guess it's a little smoother, but still a little lower pitched, you know. And Vin- this, f- yeah, Vince is one of those guys that he's a better frontman than a singer. You know, he's he's never been a great singer live. He's never been a great singer in general, but he he fits the metal vibe, you know, and that's that's all that was really. Like he could he could stay in tune and everything. It wasn't. I'm not saying he's a bad singer, but like compare him to to some of the the really truly great singers of the genre, and there's no comparison, you know. Um, so he's he's one of those guys that it, it is very interesting. He does sound really different on every every album, but I do like his vocals on this album. I like I like Too Fast for Love in general because it is so kind of raw and and new. Exactly, and and that that's part of. It was such a kind of different style. I mean, obviously, if you were in the LA scene at that time, you you were familiar with the songs. But when it hit, you know, when it when it hit the national scene, and you know, the, obviously that was with the um, Electra version. It, it it was definitely different, and it caught a lot of people's attention. Yeah. Um, well, a couple of notes about the album. Um, the Electra version was remixed by Michael Wagner, um, who is of Dawkins, Saigon Kick, Extreme, Skid Row, White Lion, and all those 80 metals albums or all those 80s metal bands fame. Uh, he even mixed, uh, he was the, the, the mixer on uh, Master of Puppets. So for Metallica. So that, that tells you he was, he ran the gamut. I mean, he is pretty good or he was pretty good because i think he's retired now at what he did in the 80s um so you know produced and mixed a lot of these 80 metal 80s metal bands um and oddly enough when michael wagner did this he wasn't super famous yet he wasn't the top producer of the time He, he actually did this mix under the supervision of roy thomas baker who was a very famous producer at the time so that that's a an interesting note about this album so um, like I said, if you have a chance to give it a listen, I think it's a great album, pretty much front to back. It's got some really interesting uh, songs on it. it, it it's They're not all one style. It, it, it does definitely run the gamut in terms of 80s metal styles out there. You know, like Livewire is so hard and so metal, you know, and then you got song like Starry Eyes, which is so melodic and softish kind of. Yeah. You know, so, it, it, you know, and Too Fast for Love is just, it's got this killer riff on it, you know. And so there's so much to, to enjoy about this album. Give it a shot. I think, uh, think you guys enjoy it again if you listen to it. All right. And I know you said, Chris, that you don't have a pick of the week. And I, and I can understand why. Because right now, the, the, the music that's coming out there is not that great. I mean, it's, it's, there's some good stuff that's coming out that, it's just not my style um so it's hard for me to like sit there and and promote and say yeah listen to this when it's not something that i am really truly into so i'd, I'd rather not have a pick of the week if i'm not going to be able to fully support something 
Exactly. So we're not going to talk about anything we don't want to support. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, it just comes so off let's get as to- insincere. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, so let's get to the main topic tonight, and that is Wasp's first album, the self-titled album Wasp, um, versus the second album, The Last Command. Wasp's first album was released on August 17th, 1984. It was produced by Mike Varney of Shrapnel Records fame. Um, mo- many of you who are out there who know about guitar albums and stuff like that know Mike Varney as the owner uh, and producer of many great, you know, like guitar albums from people like Blue Saraceno, John Christ, uh, his solo album. All a, a lot of those albums came out on Shrapnel Records. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Cacophony's first album with Jason Becker and Marty Friedman came out on Shrapnel. Yeah, he does like Ingve Malmsteen, Racer X, Paul Gilbert. Oh, yeah, all those yeah, John, all Five. those kinds of. Yeah, he's totally into those guitar players, and he gave them an avenue. Uh, to, uh, to release their music so that was pretty cool so that was what shrapnel was all about um but this album was released on capitol records and it was recorded at the record plant in los angeles california the band on this album um or actually the band on these two albums pretty much stays the same except for the fact that um tony richards was replaced. tony richard yeah tony richards is the first drummer uh, and Stephen Riley is the drummer on The Last Command. That's the only difference. Otherwise, it's Blackie Lawless on vocals and bass, Chris Holmes on lead and rhythm guitars, and Randy Piper on lead and rhythm guitars. So that's that's the band in a nutshell. Chris, go ahead and start up with Wasp's first album. I have to say before we start that Wasp's is really <laughs> hard to say. <laughs> Um, But yeah, the album starts off with I Want to Be Somebody. Uh, It's a great start to the album with a slamming drum intro. It starts the album off with high energy and exemplifies what early Wasp was all about. The chorus is recognizable. The lyrics are rebellious and angry, just as Blackie's vocals are. The solo is one of the most memorable of Wasp's. Uh, But this really shouldn't have been the intro track. Uh, and they they kind of rectified that when they re-released the album. Uh, the the original intro was supposed to be "fuck like a beast," uh, but it was cut from the album due to the controversy at the time, uh, being one of the Filthy Fifteen, and uh, you know s- stores probably weren't going to carry it at that time with that track on there. <laughs> no, um, that that track is a conversation all by itself. Um, very true. I want to be somebody. I really like that song. I want to be somebody. Uh, I mean, basically, it's there's no build up in this song. It's three seconds in, boom, you hit the lyrics, and and Blackie's just yelling at you right away. I I like the the whole call and response part with the song. You know, the the chorus is catchy and it's got the gang vocals and the, you know, I want to be somebody just chanted. It, it's so cool. I mean, that is definitely all about youth, all about rebellion. Um, it I. In fact, it, even though it wasn't supposed to start the album, I actually think it's a pretty good way to start it because it's basically just like, boom, you know, kick your ass as soon as you go in. I mean, three seconds in, it's already, you know, Blackie's already yelling at you. So I, I don't have a problem with this being the first song. Um, although knowing the song Animal as well as I do, that's not a bad intro either because that's just a slap you in the face kind of song <laughs> as well. Yeah, I mean, either way, it's a, it's a good intro. I have I don't... Uh, to be honest, I don't have a preference. 
because I like both versions of it. I I mean, at this point, I've probably listened to the the re-release more, so I kind of in my head think of that as the the proper track listening. But you know, I know in the back of my head that this is the original release. I mean, it's right. not much different. You're adding a track to the beginning and a track to the end, essentially, and then a bonus track. So, you know, not a whole lot of difference. <laughs> uh, track two is uh, Love Machine, or L-O-V-E Machine. Uh, this was the first Wasp song that I can remember ever hearing. And I, oh, I you know, kind of really dug the sound like i when i remember hearing this track and thinking like i need to hear more of this band um i loved the drumming style as well as like its place in the mix um that's one thing i really like about this album is that the drums are kind of pushed to the front uh the bass guitars at uh, the bass and the guitars at the beginning uh kind of create this this mood um you know, like there's an early melody that you can hear the bass very clearly and you can hear the guitars and then it turns into the, the main melody of the song. And that's one of the parts that I can really remember. And then I love the, the L O V E back and forth with the drum beat between, uh, you know, almost, almost the same kind of as like a call and response, but with the drum, you know, yeah. it's, it's a really cool thing. And, you know, it's not the best solo of the album, but it really fits the song. Yeah, I mean, that's the one thing uh, that that you know, this album uh, kind of deals with the the guitar playing riff wise uh, throughout the album. Everything's great. I, I believe there's a lot of of um, growing pains per se as far as guitar solos are concerned. There's there's even though they're all very melodic, and I think that has a lot to do with that they weren't the most proficient guitar players as far as solos were concerned. So they came up with really good melodic solos that were able to enhance a song. And that was really special about this album because that's, that's a, that's a trait that they have, but because they don't shred, neither Randy nor Chris are shredders. No, I mean, they're both more bluesy guitar players, to be honest. Exactly. And, and one thing I noticed that about it, and I don't know if it's Chris or, or Randy or both, but they know how to make these guitars squeal. And not squealing mm-hmm. like 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 a pinch harmonic kind of squeal. There's just part of the the way that it's recorded, part of the way that the the, the notes that they're hitting. It just kind of has like a like a very metallic squealing kind of squelch noise. There's a, yeah, there's a distinct uh, distortion sound. Yeah, their tone they, is very distinct on this, mm-hmm. you know, and I like it. So th- that's the one thing about all most of the solos on this album are like that. And, and they really, really, really do enhance the songs. So speaking of this particular song, um, it, it definitely is one of those that, that enhances the song. Um, the, I, I agree with you. I love the call and response part with the chorus and the drums and the gang vocals and all that. Um, I like how the guitars essentially are quiet in the first half of the verse and then when he comes in for the second half that you know they're they're hitting open chords basically and and you know heading into the to the ver- uh, the chorus 
So this song, to me, oozes hooks. I mean, there's hooks all over the song. This song has a lot of space to breathe, which, you know, if everyone you know who's listening knows, I love songs that breathe. You know, so this is a really, really cool song. One of the first songs I heard from Wasp, you know, along with I Want to Be Somebody. I don't, I don't even think I had heard Animal until years later. I had heard about it, but I hadn't heard the song. Uh, until I picked up the 12-inch vinyl, I got a I got a gold picture disc back from the day, and it was an import. And I was like, "Ooh, I got to get my hands on this before it, you know, it gets banned again." You know? <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, yeah, and and the drums, I love the drums on this song. I mean, it's very tribal like. Um, but if you if you listen really carefully, think about this. This is 1984, right? There's a lot of double bass on this song. And it's consistent, and it's it's not like double bass like Overkill from Motorhead, but it, it's it's very rhythmic in that it changes and it, it almost kind of has an ebb and flow to the double bass, which is uh, to me I would consider a precursor to a lot of the stuff. Even though the speed is different and the tone is different, a precursor to a lot of the stuff that ended up becoming melodic death metal or even um some of the american the new wave of american heavy metal which is 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 um mostly what's the uh, the metal that you don't like <laughs> um <laughs> metalcore oh yeah metalcore so you know it's it's a precursor to that all the way back in 1984 so i think that's that's a really cool thing if you listen Karen tony richards i've never heard from him again I don't know what band he ever played with again, but he was really good on this on this first album. So there's uh, well, there's a story to that. To uh, so so Blackie was heavily involved with the the production of the drums, uh, forcing it really. At, and I wanted to talk about this mostly later, but um, he was very. Um, what's the word uh micromanaging of the drums they tried recording it about 10 15 different ways he really drove the the engineers insane uh he at one point he didn't want any echo any extra sound so he he was having tony record one note at a time um and then they were going to just splice it all together um he he had him record just little sections and then splice it together and there was just so many things that really shouldn't happen in a production um it's it's pretty interesting to listen to to hear the people that were all involved with it and they all have the same stories to tell about how this went down and i can't imagine like with that much overbearing mentality behind it that you you would have a good time even recording this album. It amazes me how this all came together and sounds so good as it does when there was just such a overbearing mentality just just driving everything. So it's it's really interesting to to kind of hear and if you get the chance like check out um, there are some interviews with Tony Richards out there. He did have a drug problem and that kind of facilitated him leaving they they felt like he couldn't keep up with uh the performances which is something that tends to happen when you're on drugs um and he's very forthright about some of that stuff too um but at the same time he also is very honest about how black he was during the production and i think we all kind of 
know from multiple people how that's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Yeah, we're gonna, I want to talk about that when we get to the end of this whole thing um, about Chris Holmes and Blackie's relationship. Um, oh, yeah. One of the things I wanted to mention about this song uh, specifically is on the reissued version, that you, you kind of referenced it earlier when you were talking about uh, the reissue that included Animal. Um, this song, I don't know if it's a, it's a, if it's a full-blown remix or if they just took the mix that they had you know, like went back in the studio, put everything back the way to the exact mix, and then replaced the vocal track with an alternate vocal track because there is a line towards the beginning of the song that is said and done completely different than the original release. And in, in fact, I kind of like it better. So that there's another aspect to that too. Blackie recorded the same vocal line about 20 times sometimes more (laughs) um so it's very possible he just took you know a line that was recorded from earlier and just switched it out you know he went through the the tracks again and said i like this one better and switched it out so there's there's a distinct possibility that that's the case Rather yeah. than actually re-recording it later on or something like oh, yeah. that. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily think it was re-recorded later on so much as, it, like I said, it's an alternate vocal track, mm-hmm. like like what you're what you're saying. It's just it, it's very different, and not in terms of sound. It's just a, a different um, way of 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 delivering the line. And yeah. I, I thought it was really cool, actually. You know, and it's funny because now when I hear the song, I'm I'm looking for the alternate line because of how much cooler I think it is. And listening to the original, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah this is the original. You know, so I think that's it, it's uh, something to take note if for those people who have both the original version and the reissued CD. To be honest, so- I have no problem with artists trying to achieve some type of perfection um there is something to be said though like when we we go back and listen to some of these these albums or watch movies etc where you you want to see it how you saw it the first time or you want to hear it how you heard it the first time um i i mean i know we've we've heard it with megadeth you know where he's re-recorded sometimes out of necessity like with uh these boots you know he's he's had to re-record it because of the 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 lyrics um but i think we all as fans want sometimes to hear that original version but occasionally there are improvements that are made where it's like yeah this is this is better you know i like i like this version so uh, i think that's definitely one case where i actually do like the remix of this album a little more than the the original release fair enough all right, so that takes us to track three, uh, The Flame. You know, it's a little slower pace, uh, but not by much. Um, this is very reminiscent of Kiss to me. I could definitely hear Paul Stanley belting out this one. Um, the chorus is not bad. The The riff that follows the guitar solo uh, could could really be a, like a Motley Crue riff. It's it's interesting. I, I There's aspects of this song that make me think, like, this is kind of a bastard child of of uh, Kiss and Motley Crue. <laughs> um, I, I can see I can see where you're pointing out with that. Um, and I think the reason because, uh, I think the reason that is, is because this, the song is based on old school blues. Um, you know, and that's the way it is. So when they, when they, 
kind of took those old school blues and turned it into hard rock and heavy metal songs. These are the kinds of song structures that they had. And one thing I note about this particular song, The Flame, is that this song is pretty much the style in which most Wasp songs are written. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, like, if you hear this song, you can pretty much hear this song on every Wasp album, and not obviously not the same exact song, but you know, different lyrics, pretty different close. structure. <laughs> but is but right, but it's a very similar style that they're that they're uh, that they that that Blackie writes in, and this one, this particular song has that style, and it's prevalent throughout the entire career of Wasp. Um, again, another simple melodic guitar solo, which is. Uh, you can tell at this point that these guys are not shredders, but what makes that so much better is because they don't shred that they're accomplished guitar players because they can take a solo and turn it into something melodic, something that goes with the song, something that flows with the song rather than just get being given 16 bars and rip as many notes as possible. I mean, there's a lot of, of, emotion for the most part behind these songs so that or behind these solos so that that's one thing i think it's cool about almost every solo on this album um yeah i mean i agree but i at some of some of the tracks i think have somewhat lacking solos um but i'll, I'll go into that when we get to them but um overall i think it's it's really good i th- i you know there's there was room for improvement because they were a young band Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, don't get me wrong. The solos are a, 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 a what's the word I want to use? The solos are a result of the fact that they're not the best guitar players in the world, and that they're still young, and that they're still learning. Um, yeah, they, you know, the, I don't think you have to be the best guitar player in the world to put out great solos either. And, no, I don't and, think and so I, either. Yeah, I, I, I think it's one of those things that there's always that argument of, you know, you you've got a guy say like uh, Steve Vai, and he's a, a proficient, fantastic guitarist, but you compare him to somebody like BB King, you know, BB King's not hitting all the same notes every time because he he can't, you know, he he wasn't a proficient guitar player in that way he just played with whatever came out of his soul so exactly. there's always that argument of you know w- which is better and i don't think there is a better i think it's just a, a preference thing right exactly that takes us to track four which is bad uh this is michael jackson at his absolute best <laughs> um <laughs> no um it's not a bad track um it's definitely not the best bad song out there which was it's kind of a trend from the late 80s um overall it's a little bit generic it's it's another one of those like you mentioned where like wasp has a certain style a certain song structure and there's always on every album there's always a few tracks that just kind of hit that same structure to it same vibe um you know, the probably the most memorable part is the drum track. Honestly, um, it sounds really good and it's mixed really well here. Um, it does have a pretty good solo, although on this particular track, this is one I wanted to mention where it's really buried in the mix and it sounds very echoey. Um, whereas yeah. some of the others 
don't like this. I thought this was like it's a it's a better solo than the production allowed it to be. Yeah, I agree with you there. And I I had my notes said it's another meta- excuse me. My notes say it's another simple melodic solo. But yes, mm-hmm. I, I I do agree with you that it's way back in the mix. There's a lot of echo and it's it's a lot of. Uh, definitely buried in that in that regard yeah it's it's unfortunate because it, it's i think it's uh, like i said a better solo than what the mix allowed it to be it just something about kind of sticking it far in the background it just didn't make sense right and and for me i like this song i think this song is pretty cool what what i really like about this song it's a slower song it's still very melodic um and it's not a slower song in terms of like a ballad sense, but it's got a lot of groove to it. Yeah. To, yeah, to me, th- th- this song grooves, and um, that's what makes the song for me better than some others. You know, but it, as yeah, far as yeah, it's definitely not on the worst end of the spectrum on the album. But it's, exactly, it's it's not like it's in the middle to me, upper middle. I would mm-hmm. say. Yeah, and I mean, and I like the chanty part because when they say, when they say bad, it's not just saying bad to be bad, but you know they're they're you know they're shouting the letters B, you know A D E. I they like sh- the chorus. Yeah, I, I don't like the 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 part that follows it as much, but I like I like the the chorus itself. The, right, it's exactly. a cool. It's got a cool, you know, yeah, you know, bad. You know that it's cool. You know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um. So. That leads us to track five, which is School Days. Um, you know, it starts off with the Pledge of Allegiance. Now, I, I don't have kids. Uh, do kids still say the Pledge of Allegiance in school? Or I know it's an altered version or something. In 1984, they did. Well, I know that. But now <laughs> I'm, I'm just curious now. Like I don't... Um, actually, that's not true. Uh, I've been in my daughter's classes. Um, I think the last time was two years ago, before the pandemic. Um, they say the Pledge of Allegiance, and then they say the Pledge of Allegiance of Texas. Um, oh, so they still do that too? Yeah, okay. they still do that. Um, yes. Okay. And they I was have just curious. A, I know things have changed in the yeah, last. Yeah, they have. They have a kid say it over the microphone, and everybody has to, or over the intercom. Okay, gotcha. So yeah, they still do that. So to me, this is this reminds me a lot of Alice Cooper's "Schools Out for Summer." Mm-hmm. But like not as good, you know. It's the solo is like non-existent. It starts off and it starts off so well. Like it's it, it reminds me even of like a George Lynch solo at the beginning. It's got it's got some soul. It sounds really nice, and then it just like stops three seconds later. <laughs> I'm like, why? <laughs> why why did you give me solo blue balls? You know, like. <laughs> It's not it's not a bad track. It's just for me like you, you started off with I want to be somebody love machine even the flame and then you're kind of getting to the middle like and now we're going to we're going to take off again after this but this this track to me almost sounds like I'm waiting for the next song. Wow, I I kind of like this song. I mean, it it has that intro with the pledge of allegiance and then it comes in with a killer riff. Um, and it goes right into this melodic verse. Um, but you know, I, I, I mean, I can see where you're coming from as, as far as that's concerned, because the, 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 it's that chanty kind of chorus school days and stuff like that, you know, you know, school days. And then he has this little 
thing that he says about it, and then it goes. It's back a, in it's a little days. bit of a product of its time, you know. Like yes, obviously, the whole album is very eighty sounding, but there are some that that songs are are a little bit more timeless than others. Mm-hmm. Where yeah. this one definitely feels like it's mid eighties. Yeah, and and the cool thing about what the two things I like about the song it, it's uh it's kind of kind of interesting. So uh, right before the solo, there's a breakdown part. Blackie actually sings his own version of his own kind of pledge of allegiance to something, um, and then it goes into almost like the song almost just stops. You know, it comes to like a crawl, yeah. and the solo comes in, and it's just a couple of notes, and then. It it literally, <laughs> then immediately starts to, to to pick up the pace and then goes into the chorus again. Um, so that's an interesting little breakdown right there for the for the guitar solo. But the one thing that I really really like about this song, and I think it's and this is one of the things I like about you know my history as being a someone who wanted to be a producer and I look for certain things like this. Um, there's a there's a line where Blackie says a fire bell is ringing hell. And Tony starts banging away at a triangle um, that makes it sound like it's an alarm bell, and I really think that's a really cool touch on this on that song um, when he says that because it does sound like someone pulled the alarm and you know and the bell's going off. So I you think know that was that was it's cheesy, but it's it's cool. It's very eighties cheesy. You know, me. there's a lot of. Songs and I, 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 but to me, it's a nuance. I like that in certain songs. If you make a reference to something, you know, uh, yeah, no, I get like, it. Like, uh, I'm trying to think who who does a song like that. It's also another 80s song. Um, uh, oh, um, Zaxxon during their song Denim and Leather, right? You know, you know. Uh, when you you know when 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 you were a kid when you learned to play the bass and the and the ba- and the bass guy hits you no 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 he hits it like this cool little bass line you yeah. know or and, or you know did you want to play the drums and the guy starts pounding on the drums I mean the, things like that are really cool and and those are the things that that fans enjoy uh, because they it's hear it's those a things. live touch you know, yeah it's exactly it's kind of fun live yeah. So I think the song is okay. I mean, it's, obviously, it's not the best song. I like other songs better than this, and I see where you're coming from with that. But there's some, there's some touches throughout the song that make it pretty cool. Yeah. Um, well, that leads us into a really kick-ass song, uh, which is Hellion. Um, the second this is this was the second Wasp song I ever heard, and this is what like really hooked me with the band. Um, it's a killer track. To me, it always, like, the beginning sounds like literally a swarm of wasps is buzzing through the air at you. Like, it's, you know, it's got that, like, distant kind of sounding, and it's quiet, and it's getting louder as it comes while uh, Blackie's doing that little bit of a vibrato to his voice. Um, It's such a cool effect. Uh, It's ripping, pulse-pounding, and it just doesn't let up. Uh, The chorus is simple. And it, but it's just awesome, you know, it, it, because it, it, it like gradually gains energy and then, and then like kind of, uh, I don't, it's, it's almost like it's gaining like kinetic energy and then it's like expelling it at the end of each, you know, line where he says Hellion. Um, 
it, it's such a cool effect. Like it's all vocal, vocally driven while having a really awesome riff. Um, the solo is also the only like really fully fleshed out solo that trades between the leads. This is like a little bit more um, mature than some of the other tracks on the album as a whole, like mu- musically. Yes. I totally understand what you're saying. And I've heard uh, Blackie talk about this uh, and I've mentioned it to you before. So this is, uh, if you have a record or you have an album version of this, this is side two. This is the first song on side two. If you listen to the songs on side one, where we've had, I want to be somebody love machine, the flame BAD and school days. They all have a very distinct style. They're all kind of structured in the blues um, where, Side two, Hellion and the songs we're going to get to, Sleeping in the Fire, On Your Knees, Tormentor, and The Torture Never Stops, those songs all have a European style of songwriting. There's these, these are two distinct different sides, and that's really cool about this album. I mean, this is one of my favorite albums of all time, and I really love this album, and I think that's what makes it so cool because it's so distinct. And Hellion is the leader in all those songs. It's such a different style of song compared to the rest of the album that you've already heard at this point, you know. But again, oh, for sure. yeah. the thing the thing that's attractive to this to 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 Wasp and to these songs, melodic verses, catchy choruses. I mean, the killer riff on this one. And I agree with you. the The solo is more complex, more mature, like you said. There's not shredding per se, but there's a little bit more notes in there. You know, they, they've added, They, you know, by the time they've got, you know, this far into the recording process, you know, I guess Chris and or Randy had figured out a little bit more to it. Um, maybe that might have to do with the fact that it's a European style song. So there's a little bit more complexity in general to the songwriting. Um, and I also heard the same thing that you did, which is the, the trading off between the two guitar players and their solos. So so that that was very distinctive as well, where you said, oh, wait a second. So there are two guitar players doing two different solos on here. And that was noticeable, especially on this song. Oh, absolutely. All right, that takes us to track seven, which is Sleeping in the Fire. Uh, here's the ballad. And it's not bad. Uh, it's it's got and I would say it's better than not bad. It's you know because when a band like this you know plays a ballad, sometimes you go oh crap because you think about the way that Blackie sings, and it's very forceful, very angry, very just high energy. But this really works. It's got a haunting sound. It's a bit softer in the vocals at time. Well, well, it's not. He doesn't just withdraw and sing like clean and soft. It's just a little softer and it really works. Um, It's it's just funny to me that like wasp a wasp ballad still sounds so angry and focused with the (laughs) vocals. Um, But it's it's another kick-ass solo. It's a little more soulful, kind of like on the 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 first half of the album, but. And it's it's still a little more fleshed out as far as like the length. It's a, it's a good length solo too. I really like this track. At this point, when this song came out, we're still one year away from Motley Crue releasing "Home Sweet Home," so 
the 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 fact that there's a uh, a ballad on this album kind of tells you something about the music scene that they're in the LA music scene there's there's a song you need to play when you're playing live that attracts the chicks that attracts the women the females mm-hmm. so that they could you know grab onto their boyfriends you know or husbands or whatever they are in the audience uh and and just you know start hugging holding squeezing whatever and and these are the kinds of songs and and home sweet home was the the biggest one basically of the 80s that and every rose has its thorn from poison but each of these bands had this kind of song it's funny because blackie's not that kind of vocalist wasp is not that kind of band yet this this kind of slow song works for them it works it, for them. Like that's right, exactly. that's the thing. It it they didn't change styles. They didn't pull out the keyboards or anything like that. Mm-mm. Like this is still a very wasp sounding song. Oh yeah. And and you know, you say they didn't pull out the keyboards, but oddly enough, they did release a version of the song that was quote unquote acoustic. Um and I like that version as well too. It's a really cool version. Um and yes, and the, the solo's definitely a lot better than anything that's on uh, that's, that we've already heard so far because of the, the, the song. And it, it's be, because of the fact that it's such a highlight to the song because you're you're going to hear it. There's, there's not a lot to hide the fact that there's a solo going to happen. So I, I, it's a cool song. I mean, lyrically, it's not a, a, your typical love song. That's for sure. When you're talking no, about it's, Lucifer. Uh, it, it, <laughs> I don't. I don't think a ballad has to be a love song, even though it's it's more the musical style of a of a track. And in that regard, it's not. It's it's a softer song. It has a a romance to it, but it's not your typical. It's not a love song, you know. No, but the next song is a love song. It's on your knees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't know what this song was about at all. Um, praying, perhaps. Yeah, um, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, it's this is exactly like what Steel Panther was parodying all these years later. Oh, uh, uh, you think? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's another good solo, and, and it, to me, it proves what I always think about this album that the solos are superior on the second half of the album. Um, you know, it's it. It's not a bad track. It's kind of funny to me now. I think in in re- like at the time, it probably had a different um, vibe to it. Like people probably thought of it differently, but now it's just kind of s- silly in a way. <laughs> um, um, now it's silly. Now you know, for some people, it's offensive. Back in the day, it was just kind of normal. Yeah, um, you know, and it was just one of those things where you know the 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 blatant meaning of sex in the song was kind of like this is what we want we want you young lady to be on your knees you know and <laughs> oh my that, God. i mean that's really what the song's about i mean there's no there's no denying it whatsoever no these guys were very upfront about exactly what they wanted and and i mean you watch any documentary about hair metal or what is it was called hair metal now glam whatever um you you watch any documentary about it and these guys are like that's what it was about you know oh yeah i mean 
It was about getting, this point? you know, getting chicks and getting laid, you know? I mean, half these guys, they didn't have jobs, you know? And, and you saw it, if, if anybody saw The Dirt, the movie out there for, about Molly Crew, I mean, they were living in the girlfriend's house mm-hmm. because they didn't have a job, they didn't make any money, and the girlfriend supported them. This was the L.A. scene to a T. Girls supported the bands by letting them live with them. So if you if if the girl had a a singer, a bass player, a drummer, or a vocalist, I, I said that already, or a guitar player, as a as a boyfriend, they were living in their house, rent free, payment free, and you know they went out there, and the girl was was putting the makeup on them, glitzing their hair, and getting them dressed, and, you know, offering them some sort of, you know, sexual services to get them to, you know, have a good performance on stage. <laughs> you know, and that's just the way it was. That was the L.A. scene in, in the, in the early time. 80s. <laughs> you know? I mean, what, what more could a guy ask for back then if you were living in L.A. on the Sunset Strip, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't live on the Sunset Strip, and I wasn't part of that scene. You know, so <laughs> I had to, I had to, you know, live vicariously through Wasp. <laughs> I wasn't born yet. So. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right, so that leads us into the ninth track, Tormentor. Uh, it starts off with this obnoxious metal sound, like metal me- me- mechanical sound that always just really grates on me um so i think it always detracts a little bit from the 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 song but one thing that i really like about this track is it it does have one of the best solos on the album and one of the longest and there's even a little bit of zz top ish influence to it um i don't know if that's that's something that was in mind when the solo was was made but if you listen to it you can definitely hear that zz top kind of sound to it um it's a it's a cool track it definitely has that european flair where it's you know focusing on some kind of um you know s- subject that like you would hear in a death metal song or a even a black metal song where it's focused on like this song is about tormentor you know and it's you know causing uh torture and that kind of stuff which just carries over to the next song somehow um but you know it's 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 decent you're right it's decent you know um I actually like the next song better. Tormentor is just one of those songs you're you're, you're at that point where you're getting to the end of the album. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and it's like okay, it's it's decent. You know, let's move on to the next track type of feeling. You know, Especially, yeah. I mean, it fits the vibe. It's just it's just there though. Right. I don't know if it was written for because it came out on the Dungeon Master movie, which was in 1984. So I don't know if it was written for that film which is a distinct possibility or if they you know brought cuz cuz members of the band actually appeared in the movie. Oh really? Yeah, so I'm not super familiar with it um but it's it's an anthology film. Uh, if you get a chance check it out. It's kind of interesting that you know it's got three members of Wasp. I think or maybe it was all four. I can't remember. Um, yeah, actually all four appeared in it. 
but it's got like Richard Mole. Uh, I don't know if you remember him. He, yeah, was, on, uh, he was Night on Court. Night Court. Yeah. Yeah. So it, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I I kind of remember watching it a long time ago. But uh, anyway, I'm I I'm, it leads me to believe that the song was written for the movie. So there's always mixed results with that. Mm-hmm. All right, and then that leads us to the final track of the album, uh, The Torture Never Stops. This is another one that has a very similar structure to I Want to Be Somebody. Um, it's not as good, but it's it's a you know it's got a lot of energy. It's a good fitting into the album. I think it ties everything up really nicely, and like the drum track is really good. Uh, I do like the bass on here and it, you know it's a it's it's a good ending it's no it, i you know the torture i i like the chorus on this song it's got um, a good chorus yeah it's got a good, good chorus i mean it goes along with the stuff that they've written you know again it's still in a little more european style um it's it's definitely one where you've you've gotten to the end of the album and you're like okay cool they've ended it with a pretty decent song it's 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 you know it's catchy to the, to some degree and you know you've you've basically had yourself an experience with these ten songs so I think it's a good song a good way to end the album uh, it's definitely not a, a clunker um, so you know for me I'm I'm good at this point. Yeah, so overall, this is a, a really great album. It's high-energy introduction to the band that has some really awesome and memorable tracks. I'm, again, so puzzled by the chemistry of this band, as most of the tracks are penned by Blackie. Uh, and he's a bit of a control freak, but a very talented one. Um, so I think you know them being kind of in their infancy that's not as much of an issue as it becomes later when people want more credit, people want more of a say in what the band is doing, etc. And, uh, you know, the album, I think, is even better to me on the reissue, like I said. I like the sound of the reissue, and I like the additional tracks. Um, you know, they added no or Show No Mercy at the end, which I think is a better track than a lot of the the filler ones that we talked about like i think it's better than tormentor i think to me it's better than school days um i i think it's awesome i wish i wish it was on the original release yeah Um, i i I like that i like that version because it's on it's the b-side to to animal um mm -hmm. I, i i think it's pretty good um yeah both of those tracks are really good animal I wish was on the album itself, but you know, it, I understand, you know, it, and it is kind of cool having that little place in history of, of what it is and why it wasn't on the album. So in that respect, I, I get it too. Um, you know, drummer Tony Richards, like we said, had a really weird experience on this album with Blackie really wanting perfection. And, you know, I can't imagine that that, overbearing situation helped with his personal issues either so it just probably drove him to get high every night exactly with this (laughs) yeah so you know i i just at, at that point it's just so weird to me that this album came out so well but i guess you could even say that for like i think the famous one that everybody talks about that the band being in such a weird state and it coming out, you know, as a nearly perfect album is Fleetwood Mac with rumors. You know, it's so weird because everybody was hating each other and, <laughs> you know, and somehow they put out this album that's just lived 
the, you know, through the test of time. Oh, um, so, again, like you mentioned before, they would continue on to the next album the next year, Last Command. The only member of the band not continuing on was Tony Richards. And why don't you talk about that? All right. Well, The Last Command uh, came out November 9th, 1985. So we're talking about, uh, you know, 14, 15 months later. Um, it was produced by Spencer Proffer and released on Capitol Records and it was recorded at the Passion Music House. Now, the Passion Music House was owned by Spencer Proffer. Spencer Proffer is the guy who put together or produced, excuse me, um, Quiet Riot's uh mental health album so you could tell he's a decent producer you can tell he has a good eye for stuff or a good ear if you want to look at it that way so um he brought in wasp and they recorded at at the passion music house which was spencer's uh studios now the one thing about this album is definitely much slicker production uh, oh for you sure can, you can hear it right off the bat and 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 for the most part Blackie used that slicker production on the next couple of releases, um, but it didn't. It, it wasn't so slick that it wasn't metal-ish. You know, it wasn't like like uh, how when Kiss put out uh, Crazy Nights, how it sounded like Heart. You know, because it had the same uh, the same producer Ron Nevison. You know, he he. It just was uh, you know the, the keyboards and the pads and all that eighty sound. That wasn't this slickness. The the slickness on this album was just that. Stuff was definitely smoother. You could tell there's a lot more compression on this album. But first song off the bat, Wild Child. One of my favorite Wasp songs, hands down. I, I love this song. I love the story of this song. Uh, I love the melody. Uh, it's got such a catchy chorus. The The cool thing about this song, that when you watch the video for this song, back from the days when you could watch videos without having to jump on YouTube. Um, or basically, now it's actually better because you can actually pick, pull up anything you want right away. Um, back then, you had to kind of wait for it to show up. Uh, the video for this song uh, really just kind of enhances the whole story of the song, which I think is pretty cool. Um, so that that helps. And that's, this is one of those times where a video and the song kind of they they worked hand in hand with each other for the enhancement of the song and, and uh, itself. So I thought that was pretty good about it. It wasn't just a oh we're gonna do this song about you know wizards and warriors, but the song is you know it's about two guys or two guys about a couple who are in love. You know they, they, the the director didn't just take this, the the video and send it somewhere else. These two meshed really well. Um, I like on this song how the solo is. I like the solo. I like how it builds. It's extremely melodic, a little more complex. Now, you can see that the songwriting is a little bit more mature and the guitar playing is a little bit more uh, complex. A little, You could tell that they've grown in the year and a half that they've toured, played all the time, and, and now coming into this new album. So with, with the slickly produced album, this song really it catches your eye and your ear right away, and you know you're in for a, a treat. Yeah, I mean, it's an awesome track. Um, you can hear that the mix is a little bit different than what appeared on the Wasp, um, with the drums sounding distinctly different and lower in the mix, um, though they sound really good. Steve Riley sounds pretty good um, and fits right in. So he picked up, and from what I understand, even Tony Richards, like I, I listened to an interview with Tony, and he said, you know, Steve 
came in and had to learn everything and picked it up really quickly and fit right into the band. So even he it praised his his successor. Um, the guitar works really good. Like you said, a little more mature. Chris Holmes definitely has more of an influence here. He has more writing credits, and you can tell. Uh, the solo is really cool. <laughs> it's funny. It's got it's got seagull sounds. It's got jingling bells. It's got maracas and tambourine. <laughs> I don't know what's going on, why they're adding all these sound effects, but uh, it, it works and it's really cool. I, this is one of, one of the better tracks definitely on the album. I really like it. These are, these are sounds that you only hear in the wild. <laughs> the, the wild tambourine. You can see it in its natural environment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. So, anyway, the song goes uh, into Ball Crusher. Uh, now, uh, let's go back to On Your Knees. This is the opposite. This is the girl getting back at the guy. <laughs> uh, you know, it's... it's The funny thing about Wasp's first album was that... Other than On Your Knees, there wasn't anything that's really, oh, maybe Love Machine. There wasn't anything that's really blatantly sexual. Uh, more, a lot more innuendo-ish kind of things, you know, other, like I said, other than On Your Knees. Um, where Ball Crusher is just like, you know, you're, you're dealing with some chick who's in, in command, <laughs> you know. Mm. And so... Uh, you know, it, it it's it becomes a typical theme for Wasp, but they, they get more and more away from the uh, I, I guess you could say the violent part of their band and their act, and more into the sexual part of their act. Um, and that's you know you, you take one for the other. Um, the cool thing about the song, you know, you can hear Randy and Chris trading guitar solos, which is pretty neat. The chorus is catchy. I mean, again, Blackie has a way of writing. Uh, he's outstanding when it comes to melodies and catchy hooks. So, you know, it's just another one of those songs. Although, for me, this song probably is one of the more generic songs on the album. And I don't know how you feel about it. I mean, I like it. I, you know, it's kind of a little more high energy than the first track, but I'm not saying that that's it should be before it. I I think Wild Child was the perfect opening for the album. Um, I just it's you know it's a little more energetic as a song as a whole. Um, you know, it's pretty typical Wasp affair. Um, this the solo is pretty awesome. Um, and it has a, a bluesiness to it, which kind of carries on through the album. Some of that, some more of that ZZ Top sound that I mentioned. Um, the only thing that I think really, and maybe this is this is why you feel the way you do about it. I think the the drums are lacking. Like I, it's no slight to to Steve Riley as a drummer because the drum track is good. The problem is the it's like too low in the mix for this particular song. It should be more heavy hitting. I mean, the song's called Ball Crusher. It should like it should have drums like hitting hard, and it it just sounds almost a little stunted, in a way. Yeah, I yeah I agree with you, and I, and I agree with the fact that that's just the way the production is throughout the whole album. It's it's one of those things where 
like you said, Blackie had such a hand in doing the first album, and he made sure that drums kind of sounded in your face, almost like a Lars Ulrich kind of, you know, we're going to make sure Similar the drums concept, yep. right, you know, the drums are in your face, where this one is definitely way, and I don't want to say way back in the mix so much as it, the, when, when you, you know, for, for those people who don't know, um, when you use compression as a whole, not on not on the individual instrument, but as a whole for the song, it levels everything out. But at the same time, when you have a song that breathes, okay, certain parts will go up and become louder while other parts get lower. Okay, so when you have a song like, say, for this one, where everything is just kind of, there's not a lot of breathing in the song and there's a lot of uh, stuff going on all at the same time, then the whole thing sounds a little squashed. And so... Unless you mix something and you punch it way up to the front, everything is going to kind of sound a little flat. And I think that's the issue with this whole album as far as that's concerned, you know, the, and, and the slick production. So when you have a little bit less slick production, you're going to see, you're going to have a sound like the first album where things are in your face or certain things stand out a little bit more. So that's, that's um, production 101 for some people. <laughs> yeah, definitely it's i just think like because we've heard albums where the bass is you know kind of pushed down in the mix and then there's a track where the bass kind of pops and it's like that makes sense you know mm -hmm. where we, right. we've heard a lot of albums that do that kind of thing and i think in this particular case like it was a mistake not to push the drums a little further because of the content of the song of what it was because on the other tracks that make sense to me in a lot of ways like as we get uh, the next track i think the drums fit very well well but like in this track i think it just doesn't make sense right and speaking of the next track fistful of diamonds is the third track in the album um starts off with a stock market report it's either a radio or a tv version <laughs> of it yeah what, what is that well because it's talking about diamonds and i don't I know, know but it's just <laughs> such a weird you know it, it kind of almost like the pledge of allegiance there with school days you know and that makes sense is that school days you know <laughs> i pledge allegiance to the flag you know that's right. what you do in school but i don't know i just it's not a bad thing. It's just weird. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the songs, there's there's a lot of melody uh, on the verses, on the chorus. You know, the solo is melodic, uh, a little bit more complex, you know, than, than stuff from the first album. Again, we're seeing the maturity and the growth of, the, of Randy and, and Chris on this album. So that's pretty cool. Uh, Fistful of Diamonds, I mean, it's, it's a cool chorus um and, the, and yeah and the drums stand out a little bit more and i think it has a lot to do because it's not so the, the all the instruments are not on top of each other like they were on ball crusher and so that there's slight room for breath and that's what you know allows it to to sound a little bit better that's true um there's one thing that i specifically noted about this song the the outro solo is better than the actual solo what's that <laughs> uh, it's but it's short isn't it it's short and it's it but it sounds like it's like because if you listen to it and you turn the volume up because you know it's it's fading out right you're like this kicks ass why <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> what are they doing <laughs> yeah i mean it, that's just i guess that was that was him just you know starting to to, to rip it and then all of a sudden it's like i right, know we're gonna end the song now <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> but wait yeah. 
So, <laughs> so then, so it ends, right? So you're, 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 uh, you're, you're cranking the sound because you want to hear this really cool solo. And then all of a sudden you get cowbell, but you, mm-hmm. so here's a perfect example of production and compression. You know, it's a weird thing that we're talking about this in this thing, but this cowbell that you hear, right? It has it has an echo, it has a reverb to it, but then you hear it stunted, right? And then it it, it kind of echoes, but then it stops. So and it they do it uh, three times before it goes into the the song. So you know, it, it's kind of like that's a perfect example of the production on this album when you hear that cowbell. But like everything else. We got to have more cowbell. How come there isn't more cowbell? <laughs> um, oh, <geez. laughs> it's it's a for the most part though. There's a really cool main riff on this song. It's got a again Blackie's trademark cool melodic choruses, and and you know Chris and and Randy. I don't know who's doing the solo, but it's a pretty cool solo on this song. From what I understand. Uh Chris did a lot more because he was he was taking that role, being a little bit more active in that. Um, Randy was a little bit checking out by this time. Like he, did, it wasn't that he wasn't performing well or anything like that. I think he was he was getting ready to move on, and it, you know he left after this album. So the, from from the interviews that I've heard. Again, it wasn't that he wasn't putting in full effort or anything like that. He just he never was really one to to like be in the forefront or anything like that he was tired of blackie shit that's very possible because he actually played with him before uh in a couple different bands before they formed wasp yeah i don't even know those bands i I do remember sister and circus circus oh he wasn't sister okay that's right Mm -hmm. so randy was in sister and that uh briefly had nikki six in sister um yeah, I, I, I remember back in the day when Randy left and, you know, I, I always wanted to f- see what his next project was. And I do know he appeared a couple times. He popped up here and there, um, but never really anything solid and never anything that was uh, long lasting. So, yep. So one thing about Jack Action that, it, well, first of all, the name's Goofy, but I do like the track. I think it's. You know, it reminds me a lot, a lot of game shows from the late 80s and early 90s. The, the riff does. It reminds me of, like, I don't know, Double Dare kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, if you remember that show. Uh, not specifically the actual song, but shows like that. Like, stuff that was on Nickelodeon. And anyway, it just it reminds me of that. Um, and this was actually one of the, the few tracks that uh, was co-penned by Steve Riley. Steve Riley. There's so much to talk about him, but I'm not <laughs> going to talk about him now. <laughs> All right. Well, that brings us to Widowmaker. Now, Widowmaker is kind of a weird song in that it's not your typical ballad where it's slow, you know, and it's it's one of those kinds of things that put you in the mood and you just kind of sway to the song. This is a little bit faster than normal, but you could tell it's definitely one of the ballads because there's two on this album this is the first one it's a moody song definitely a much more mature song than what we've heard so far from wasp um but again you know true to blackie he he has a really good knack for making catchy choruses 
melodic verses, and Chris is throwing out a melodic solo on this one. Even though it's relatively simple, it's still very melodic. Yeah, I mean, it has some of the similar haunting vibes to Sleeping in the Fire. Um, you, you pretty much nailed it on the head with what I was going to say, where this is definitely a ballad, but it's not it's not a very soft one or anything like that, but it still has that val that ballad aspect to it. Um, this is typically, this is around the time in a wasp album where I'm like, man, I wish Blackie would kind of vary up his vocals a little bit, you know, because he's just, it's just the same the whole time. You know, he's just, really just very forceful the whole time and when the album is not the you know like with wasp there's there's a a very much more cohesive sound to it i think they were experimenting a little bit more with with the last command and i don't know this track for me because there there's better ones coming up but this track for me is like I don't know. I just wish he would do something a little more like he did maybe a little bit later in his career where he changes his vocal style up a little bit Um, because I don't feel like the vocals 100% fit this song. I I, I kind of I, I know where you're going with that, you know, and that was the weird thing. Like with "Sleeping in the Fire," he forced his vocals and he forced in that kind of semi falsetto voice that he was singing in, mm-hmm. where. But I feel like it worked better on that track than on this one. It did. It did. Because for a lot of people, no one knew who they were. And and so that was just the whole style. But you could, you could tell throughout this, the, the, like for instance, with wild child, um, you could tell he has a different voice. And the one thing though, when you do notice is that his voice, when it goes normal, it's very deep. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's not – it's very similar in, in regards to like um, – uh, what's his face? Tom Kiefer from Cinderella, um, where when Tom Kiefer's singing in his normal, natural tone, it's deeper, it's smoother. Um, it, it, coming home off of Long Cold Winter is a perfect example of the two styles of vocals that Tom has. Uh, the the intro the guitar intro part he's just singing he's got straight clean vocals and then when he gets kicks into the to the rest of the verse he goes into that high squelching you know well, I mean you could say the about Rob Halford even I mean yeah but Rob Halford does it all the time all over the place but he doesn't have a rasp uh, uh, that that is his main voice he has so many different voices and that's what's cool about Rob but they're typically mostly clean. Um, the painkiller type vocal or the or the into the pit type vocal is something that we know he does and he forces it and he does it on purpose because it's it, it fits the song. All his vocals. Fit I'm just the saying song. he he does so he does a high pitch where mm-hmm. he goes and and it is he changes his tone for mm-hmm. that and then he does the the growly kind of voice and he changes his tone for that and then he does the kind of whiny pitched you know he does so right. he does all these different things effects but then when you hear his clean voice it's it's like oh wow yeah but you know like for Tom but Kiefer, he uses it 
effectively. Right. Absolutely. And, and that's why Rob is who Rob is. But mm-hmm. like with Tom Kiefer, Tom Kiefer has two, that's it. He he either sings in that main rasp, you know, that's kind of like, you know, yeah. Brian no, Johnson-ish all the time. Or he throws that that one little clean stuff that he did in Coming Home. Because he never uses that pretty much. And he uses it more now because he needs to protect his vocal cords. Mm-hmm. Now, talking about Blackie, Blackie, I, I think, I mean, you can hear it in certain times where his voice goes down and up. You can hear that he's pushing that out, that that raspy growl that he has. Um, yeah. That, that sounds like he's, you know, singing over a bunch of rocks. That's just the way he sings. He can sing clean, and he obviously has done it later on, um, and he does a better job of it. He can sing that way if he wanted to, but that's his style. This is the Wasp style, you know, and I agree with you. I think he should use that more often. It would show off the fact that he's a better vocalist, a better musician, whatever you want to call it. Um, Widowmaker... You know, I don't mind it so much. Again, it's catchy, so it's not it's not that bad. But I can see where you're talking about because if he if because it is such a much more mature song, he could have gone with a mature vocal with it, or at least just varied the vocal up a little bit. Right. But then you have a song like "Blind in Texas," the next song on the album. This is one of Wasp's most popular songs. It's probably their most fun song out there. I really, really enjoy this song a lot, um, especially now that I live in Texas and you hear all these cities that he references during the song. Um, this is a, a, a fun song. It's a, it's a song about Texas. Like I just mentioned, it's a, and he talks about how he drinks a lot. <laughs> um, it's a cool call and response type chorus. It's got, you know, gang vocals in it. Um, I really enjoy the mid the mid song breakdown where he's talking to the bartender and the bartender tells to go back to California on his horse and, you know, and get the hell out of here. Um, and Blackie's response back is a little belligerent cause he's probably drunk. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a fun song, but it, 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 it really nails it as far as it's still a good song out there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's another one that has that little bit of a, a ZZ Top flair to it that I, you know, that I keep mentioning, um, and it's fittingly for Texas. You know, it, it makes sense. Um, the lyrics are a blast. It's you know, it's it's such a fun riff and chorus. Uh, the bluesy solos are really great, and we get two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, this is totally fitting to be the first uh, single released on the album. Yes, yes, for sure. Um, again, you know, it's a fun song, and it, it's one of their most popular songs. Um, the next song on the album is Cries in the Night. This is the second ballad on the album. Um, this one is more ballady. This is more uh, relationship-ish. Um, I think it's way cat- better than Widowmaker. Yes, it's it's way better. It's It's definitely a song where... You know, there was a little bit more thought put into the fact that it's a ballad, you know. And so, again, it, but it, it fits the album because there's, you know, gang vocals and it's, it's catchy chorus, you know. But it, there's but there's that part of it where you know it's a ballad, you know. And, and um, it it works. It, to me, it works really well. Yeah, I mean, it's not bad. I don't, I don't think it's quite as good as Sleeping in the Fire, but... Um I, I like it a lot. I think it's a good track on the album for sure. 
It's not as good as Sleeping in the Fire because con- contextually, it's a different kind of song. Um, but it in in the time that it's out, 1985. Now you're getting into that range of like um, you've you've had Molly Crew do Home Sweet Home. Poisons come out with uh, I won't forget you, baby. At this point, um, so they, they it's more I won't forget you is more like this one where it's it's kind of like the um, the up tempo ballad, uh, even though Wasp will never be mistaken for the love song sappy kind of uh, ballad, <laughs> and Wasp will never be known for that you know the Poison style of band. They're just such different bands, but. This in this particular ballad, I think it works for the album, although it's not as good as Sleeping in the Fire because Sleeping in the Fire works so well with that album. Mm-hmm. That's and and it's just so much. It's a better song in that regards. So um, this one is just a, a the second ballad on an album that's kind of you know starting to get towards the end of the album. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So the next song after Cries in the Night is The Last Command. That's the title track. Now things pick up again. The the, the song is 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 um, up-tempo. Um, it's got a cool harmony intro to it. Um, again, Blackie's, Blackie's on point with the melodic verses and the catchy chorus. I like this song a lot. I like, you know, the gang vocal part of it. You know, it, 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 one thing I like about this song... Specifically, is how in the chorus, there's two parts to the chorus, and the first part of the chorus almost seems like that's all you need for the chorus, and you almost think it's going to end right there. And then he kind of kicks back into the chorus riff and does the second half of the chorus, different words, but it's really it's really cool how that works because I almost thought the first time I heard the song, I was like, Oh, you know, he says the last command once and it's over with, but no, he goes back into it again and, and kind of changes things up and says last command earlier or later. I can't remember which one it is, but you know, in one half of the chorus, he says last command at the beginning and the other half, he says it on the, at the end. I don't know which one goes where, but I like the way that, that, that works out on this song. You know, my opinion is definitely different than yours. I I like it. It's just to me, it it was never one that really stood out to me. I always thought it was funny that this was the title track. Uh, it, it makes me think like, why do bands pick certain tracks as the title track? You know, there are times where it makes complete sense. It's like the best song on the album. There are other times where it's like, yeah, it's a good song. You know, I I guess I get why it's you know the the title track. Um, and then there's like, I, you know, I, but I, I think about it and I'm like, what could be a better title track than the last command? Cause I, I don't know how that really makes a whole lot of sense in a lot of ways. Cause it's like, it sounds so final, even though it's the second album. Um, well, it's funny when you look at all the rest of the songs, yeah. you're like, okay, okay you're gonna what name song it Jack could Action? be the title track? <laughs> you're going to name it ball crusher. Exactly. <laughs> you, know, you know, wild child would probably been good. Um, True, but I, I think it, the best situation would have been Wasp 2 because there's no song in here that, to me, stands out enough to sit there and say, oh, this should be the title track. Yeah. Uh, but but they chose Last Command, and that's where we're at all these years later. <laughs> True. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I mean, it's it's not a bad track. I think every time I listen to it, I like it. You know, I, I, I think I'm going to like it more. 
but I, I just continue to kind of like it the same. Because <laughs> there, there are really uh, cool moments, like you said, the the melodic intro I like, um, but then I I just kind of like start ADHDing after that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay, I see that. I see how that goes. Um All right, so the next song is Running Wild in the Streets. Um this is the point in the album where we're like, you know, we're on wasp overload and we're getting there. We've got we just came off a pretty decent song compared to, you know, uh definitely, yeah. The song be, before cry, you know, cries in the night. So you're 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 in the up tempo mode. I mean, it's got some Again, catchy gang vocals in the pre-chorus. The gang vocals in the chorus is good. It's a fun song to sing along with, but it's just one of those songs. This song reminds me a lot of, and it's funny because it says Wild in the Streets. The song um, uh, from Bon Jovi's, uh, what you call it? Um, what's the name of that album? Slippery When Wet? Slippery, yeah, Slippery When Wet. Um, there's a song, if I'm not saying he has a song called wild in the streets too. And it's, it's the same point in the album It's towards the end. And it's just this thing that kind of gets everybody going again. It's like, it's the energy song. And this to me is, is that, that same song it's talking about running wild in the streets and just bringing up the energy again, heading out to the last song on the album. What do you think? So there's something interesting about this track where, um, this was originally written, or it's it's written by the producer of the album. What is his name? Spencer Proffer. Okay, yeah. So he actually demoed this out to Kickaxe, or as, as they were known, all also Spectre General. Um, so, <laughs> so what's what's interesting about this is think about it in the context of a Kickaxe song. To me, that makes more sense. Because that band right. played songs that were somewhat similar, like Hunger, that had the same kind of vibe. And I can actually see them. I, I could not find the the Kick-Axe version of the song. I looked I looked under both names. I just could not find it. So I don't know if it's out there, like where somebody's got it, where you can listen to it. But I would I would like to hear that version to, to you know, kind of see where they're at. This was also demoed by Black Sabbath. Which is kind of interesting because, nah. yes. you know, think about where they were at their career at that time. So this was... I don't see this being a Black Sabbath song. Well, I mean, think about it as this is post um, Ian Gillen era of the band. So this would have been, what, Tony Martin or maybe even Ray Gillen? I can kind of see it with a Ray Gillen. It would, it would have been Ray Gillen because I think Ray Gillen came in and then kind of did his thing and then kind of left yeah so i I, in that regard i think it kind of makes sense but i also see why they didn't go with it because because what they did on eternal idol which i believe was right around that time correct me if i'm wrong but um yeah it just it didn't mesh with this style whatsoever so no no this definitely wasn't their style um it just wasn't gonna that I don't know, you could you could demo whatever you want, but Yeah, I mean obviously it didn't make it onto any album or anything. This was this was around the the um the seventh star. Which was not even supposed to be a Tony Iommi album. So right. who knows? I mean, there's a lot of changes going on back then. Um Yeah. And it's, and it, it's got a uh, Glenn Hughes on vocals, so that, that tells you something right there. 
Well, very, see that, but that was a year later, and I'm not sure Glenn Hughes was in the band at this point. I know there was a lot of changes going on because this was oh, yeah. right after Born Again. You know, who knows? It, Black Sabbath has such a, such an interesting history. <laughs> but anyway, right? Well, they were they were in between vocalists at the time because apparently, if you if you read the notes on it. Ron Keel was the one who demoed it with Black Sabbath. Oh, really? So, oh, interesting. Yeah, so that's uh, the strange thing there. And that, so that makes sense in a terms of vocal pitch. Of, you want yeah, to of trying to like find a place and probably trying to find a new sound. Yeah, and they were trying to, you know, I guess, be of the times. And so Ray Gillen does come uh, in at this point later, yeah, later on. After a Glenn. few years later, yeah. Well, he comes after Glenn, so you know the, you can see that Black Sabbath is trying to be relevant. Mm-hmm. You know, so if they if they were looking at at Ron Keel as a vocalist, you could see the kind of style of music that they were trying to go into, and um, yeah, that's not Black Sabbath, and that's no. why Black Sabbath didn't work very well in the eighties. No, um, but regardless, but the song does have a cool solo. I'll give it that. <laughs> All right, awesome. I love cool solos. All right, so that brings us to the last song on the album. It's Sex Drive. And, yeah, I'm done with the album at this point. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's the last song on the album for a reason. Uh, In my opinion, it is probably the least melodic song on the album. It it just feels like they just jumbled a bunch of shit together and came up with this song. And, you know, they were just done. That's the way I feel. All right, so interestingly, this is the oldest (laughs) song that they had in their catalog. This was from the previous band, Sister. And interestingly, the, the writing credit goes to Blackie and Chris Holmes, which Chris Holmes was not part of Sister. So I listened to both versions. You can find the original and you can find, mm-hmm. obviously, the one that's on the album. Um, so I listened to both versions. Not a whole lot of difference. There is a little bit of instrumentation that's different. The bass is definitely more prevalent on the sister version um but they pretty much sound the same the solo's different it's not a whole lot different but it's different so maybe that's where the writing credit to chris comes in um i'm not 100 percent interesting but yeah definitely check out the other version after we you know after we wrap this up because um i think you you'd be interested to hear you know both as I, I think it's weird. Like, I, I think it's like maybe they, they the, the the producers didn't feel like they had enough tracks. So they were like, hey, we need one more. And they were like, well, let's pull out this old one. Interesting, because, you know, if, it, if, if what you're saying is true, right, you know, why is Chris Holmes getting a, a writing credit just for changing a guitar solo? Usually guitar solos are not something that you credit songwriting with. Um, which is interesting because usually it's it's basically melody. There are there is a little bit different notes, like the notes are different, but the melody is essentially the same. So right, and so yeah, usually melody being the same will, will keep the songwriting the same, mm-hmm. um, and it, unless you change the 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 vocal structure, sort of like the whole issue with with. Um, Skid Row and Sebastian Bach. Yeah, you know Skid Row holds the t- you know they so- they wrote the songs even though Sebastian Bach changed some nuances about the vocal melody. Big time. He was looking for song. <laughs> he was look. Yeah, he was looking for some songwriting credits. But essentially, it's not. You know the lyrics were written by you know Snake and 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 
Rachel and that's it, you know, yeah. and, and the, the melody, I mean, you know, so. But but you got to listen, if you listen to those old Matt Fallon versions of the tracks. and oh, yeah, then you they're lame. I mean, his vocal versions are lame. Yeah, you, you listen know, to like, Sebastian Bach, he definitely elevated the, those songs, like big right, time. And that's, but that's a performance issue. Mm-hmm. That's not a songwriting issue. Yeah, so it's interesting. De- definitely check out both and let me know what you think because I'm curious about that. I'll, I'll check it out. So we're at the end of the album. Um my summation of this album is that I wouldn't call it a sophomore slump so much as it's definitely not um, the best follow-up, but it's it's it was very solid because you had songs like Blind in Texas. You had songs like Wild Child. So you had stuff that definitely followed up and, and were good songs by themselves. Um, so that they definitely carried the album. I just felt like they whole. were trying things a little more. And it kind mm-hmm. of deviated from like the cohesiveness of the first album because that was Blackie's thing. You know, Blackie wrote it and he put everything together. Um, there's not many other writing credits on the first album, whereas this one had more influence from other people. And I think in that regard, like it was them doing more things and it's not as quite as cohesive. Right. I, and I could see that. Um, so. In in my opinion, I'm going to go with the first album being the better album. Um, again, like I said before, it's one of my favorite albums. Um, this is the second one. I use. I, I mean, I recall it distinctly, listening to it a lot. All and realistically, um, I listened to side one a lot because it had it on a cassette, and I put it in my car and used to listen to it all the time, and. You know, Wild Child, Fistful of Diamonds, Ball Crusher, uh, you know, those songs were just always playing, you know. And so I I remember listening to this album a lot, but I also remember listening to the first album a lot. And the first album to me is just so much better. And I like the fact that it's got those two distinctive different styles. So I think that's what really is, is interesting about that first album for me. Yeah, I think there are certain aspects about the first album that definitely make it better. I like a lot of the tracks, Hellion, Love Machine, I Want to Be Somebody, Sleeping in the Fire. I think they're all really great tracks. Um, I think what you know, you're talking about where it has two different styles is a really cool aspect to it. And then the drums, I think, sound better in the mix than they do on uh, Last Command. And that's no slight to the drummer. That's not what I mean whatsoever. What I'm what I'm specifically referring to is the way the mix is done. It is slicker production, and I typically don't like that. I like the yeah, rawness. Pr- production over performance. I mean, there's two different things. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, and I'm going to agree with you. Despite there being some really good songs on Last Command, um, I think that Wasp is a better album. Absolutely. And so one of the things that I wanted to say, and um, we talked about it a little bit in the previous episode where we were talking about the the beef between Chris Holmes and um, Blackie Lawless. Um, Right after we recorded the episode, um, I happened to catch a part of the Chris Holmes documentary that's on Amazon Prime. And it's kind of a... a, uh, an, a blown up version of that conversation that Chris had with that interviewer then. And it's, it's more of like a constant thing with Chris. Um, the, the documentary follows his current life living out in Cannes, France. 
Um, he's married to a French woman out there who's madly in love with him. She does everything for him as far as, you know, trying to keep his musical career going. And that's great. He is a very, very rough around the edges American who lives in France and he makes it known that he's an American who lives in France. He has no intention of learning French, which is part of the arrogance of American people that when they go to another country, um, but he still continues to gripe about his relationship with Blackie. And it's just like the, it's the constant theme. And I don't think until something is resolved there, it will ever stop. You know, he talks about Blackie and, and, and how, you know, he's one person compared to, uh, you know, another person. And, and when, what I mean by that is he, he talks about how Blackie, the real Blackie is Stephen Duran uh, or Duran. I forgot how to pronounce the name and that Stephen, you know, is a different person. And once he puts his clothes on and he becomes Blackie Lawless and takes the stage, he's a different person. And Blackie Lawless, the wasp businessman is different than Stephen Duran, the friend that's outside of the band. And it's, it's a shame in a way because you can tell that there's something there. And I mentioned this last week without even seeing the, the documentary, how the two of them are kind of always going to be connected and it's always going to be one of these things where they really kind of need to put their, their, their differences aside, especially now with uh blackie being like a, a what do I call that? A, a born again Christian, you know? So it's one of those things where yeah, I think, you know, unless, you know, blackie is, still going to be a hardliner when it comes to business situations. I really think they need to sit down and talk it out because I think that's really what Chris, uh, what, what Chris, um, strives for is that relationship again with Blackie. And so I hope that that comes to fruition one day. It could be, I, you know, we, we may never know, but hopefully we do. All right. So, that uh, brings us now to the big four. And the big four this week is Wasp songs. Kind of figured that was going to be it, right? So um, I think... You went... Or you, I went first last week. So You went first last week, so I'm going to go first this week. Um, my my um, big four is kind of... I don't want to say all over the place because it's really not. It's It's centered around one... I guess general time period, but it's not, uh, it's not what you think it is. So anyway, let's get going. Number four for me, the song that started it all was like, they like to say animal. I fuck like a beast. Um, if it wasn't included in my big four, you know, then I should never do another big four. That's just one of those songs that you have to include even though there may be better songs out there, that's why it's number four. Um, it's just one of those songs that you hear it, you know, song structurally, it may not be the best, but it's, it's your typical Blackie lawless wasp song. It's pretty cool that way. Um, number three for me, now here's a different song and uh, maybe it's because I'm just this kind of guy. It's a, it's the song mean man. Uh, I love that song, Me Man, I believe it's off of um, The Headless Children. It's a really cool 
song. I love the the chorus with it because I'm a mean, a mean motherfucking man. So <laughs> I I really like this song a lot. It's got a killer riff. So and Frankie Benali, by the way, plays on that album. Uh, number two for me, Love Machine. Um, we talked about it earlier. You know the 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 tribal rhythm to it. The vocals, the, just the whole production of it. I really, really, really like this song. And number one for me, I kind of mentioned it earlier as well, Wild Child. Hands down, my favorite Wasp song, period. All right. So it always amuses me how similar some of our lists are because we come from different time periods. We, we listen to a lot of different stuff, but there are certain times where certain songs are just that good um so my my big four is very similar to yours a little different but similar um my number four is also animal and for pretty much for the same reason it's just such an impactful song it is really like cool history wise and metal because of what it is and how it related to the the filthy 15 and all that stuff going on at the time and so it's just one of those those songs that that it's kind of important in the history of metal and also it's just awesome um my number three is wild child your number one um love this this track it's so good it's a great opener for the album and uh you know it's it's the inspiration for alexi lyo's nickname i mean he was alexi wild child lyo so um i always thought that was really cool he was a huge fan um my number two is your number two love machine Again, it was the first Wasp song that I ever heard. It really stuck with me. It was one that I've always really liked and um, definitely deserving of my number two. But my number one, I mentioned it and you probably remember from earlier, is uh, Hellion. I love this track so much. It is, you know, dynamic. It's heavy. It's just, it's really fun. And, uh, this is another one that relates to Children of Bottom. Uh, they did a cover of it that appeared on their Follow the Reaper album. So if you haven't heard that one, check it out. It's really good. Um, but it is my favorite Wasp track. It's funny. We were talking about, you know, doing the show tonight and, you know, having to write our notes for it. And I listened to a Spotify playlist throughout the day at work and when I put it on this morning, if I'm not mistaken, the second song that popped up was the uh, was the Children of Bottom version of Hellion. So that was oh, that's funny, cool. yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. So there you have it, guys. Um, that is our Big Four Wasp songs for tonight, and that brings us to the end of this episode. So, as a reminder, you can find this and all of our previous episodes on your favorite podcast platform. So please don't forget to click the subscribe button. That's right. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, be sure to send us a message on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, or send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com. If you use Spotify, be sure to check out our playlist from our Greatest Hits episodes. And remember to tune in to the next episode when we spark up another exciting metal debate. On behalf of Kenneth and myself, stay safe, and remember, always turn it up to 11. See ya.